Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you information that you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 24. Today, you'll hear my interview with Denise Clark, Russ Kane, and Matt McGinnis. They've been drinking, writing about, and promoting Texas wine for much longer than I have been. And they've got a lot of insight into the industry, where it's been and where it's going. Plus, I've got all the latest news about Texas wine. Already this month, we've had a major news development. A lawsuit has been filed against Bayer Monsanto and BASF, makers of Dicamba, by 57 Texas High Plains grape growers. The filing is related to crop damage from the herbicide Dicamba. News of this lawsuit has been in newspapers across the country. I'll share what I've learned from the filing and the news articles that I've read. Also, if you're looking to purchase a winery in the Texas Hill Country, there's a big one for sale. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. All right, Texas Wine has been in the news a lot this week. On June the 4th, 57 Texas wine producers and grape growers sued chemical giants Bayer Monsanto and BASF. They're seeking over $560 million in damages and alleging that dicamba, which is an herbicide used to help grow cotton and soybeans, damaged both their crops and their bottom lines. The plaintiffs represent a combined 3,000 total acres of grapevines in the Texas High Plains. So it's a very large group of plaintiffs. The lawsuit claims that dicamba products manufactured and distributed by the two agribusiness corporations have damaged thousands of acres of Texas vineyards in the High Plains since 2016. That's due to drifting clouds of the herbicide from the nearby cotton fields. The Texas High Plains region near Lubbock is one of the world's largest cotton patches, and they've got nearly 3 million acres of cotton out there. Vineyard owners say the effects of dicamba have led to a dramatic decrease in production in recent years, and threaten their continued survival. According to a fact sheet put out by the plaintiffs, dicamba is so volatile that it readily converts to a gas that can drift for miles onto unprotected crops. It can actually turn into a gas for 72 hours to 7 days, especially under hot and dry conditions such as those on the Texas High Plains. You'll recognize many of the names of the plaintiffs. They include Andy Timmons, Ty Wilmoth, Stephen Cindy Newsom, Reddy Vineyards, Nara Vineyards, McPherson Cellars, Altaloma Vineyards, and about 50 more. Neil Newsom was quoted in the Dallas Morning News saying, We can't continue like we're going. This is not sustainable. This will eventually ruin me if it continues. Newsom considers dicamba a nearly existential threat for the close-knit High Plains grape-growing community. We're all in the same organizations, and we all visit each other's vineyards, he said. It doesn't matter where you go, what vineyard you're looking at. It's in the garden, it's in the landscaping, it's permeating everything. Bayer states, we have great sympathy for any grower who suffers a crop loss, but there are many possible reasons why crop losses might occur, including extreme winter weather conditions. Bayer said the EPA studied its product and determined that it does not pose any reasonable risks of off-target movement when used according to label directions. The lawsuit, which is believed to be the first dicamba-related lawsuit in the U.S. wine industry, 
cites the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Services study, asserting that between 90 and 95 percent of the High Plains region's grapevines have been damaged. The damage can lead to not only short-term crop losses, but also can cause premature weakening and death of vines. Turns out Arkansas honey producers are also suing over dicamba injury to their destroyed vegetation the farm's bees relied upon. That reduced the farm's honey production and the bee population starting in 2018. These new lawsuits come as BASF and Bayer are still fighting to overturn a $265 million jury verdict, which has since been reduced to $75 million against the companies for dicamba in- injury to a peach orchard in Missouri. Both companies have appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, arguing that the jury verdict should be reversed. At the same time, Bayer is still working through a settlement for injury to non-dicamba-tolerant soybean fields. The company agreed to make $400 million available to resolve multi-district litigation in Missouri over dicamba claims to soybean fields from 2015 to 2020. Cliff Bingham, a plaintiff in the case and owner of Bingham Family Vineyards and Meadows, said that his annual production crashed from 800 tons to under 100 tons last year. Bingham said his family business is facing extinction because of dicamba poisoning. He says, quote, you're talking about the legacy of a family business. Eight of our 11 children's livelihoods depend on this vineyard. If we can't grow dicamba free, we're history, end quote. We'll certainly hear more about this divisive issue in the months to come. I'll link to the referenced articles and the legal filing in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. Now on to a happier note. Is now the time for you to become a Texas winery owner? Well, there's a winery for sale, and it's Flat Creek Estate. Rick and Madeline Neighbor founded Flat Creek in 2001. The estate sits on over 80 acres of land on the north side of Lake Travis near Austin. The vineyard has deep, sandy loam soil, and its first vines were planted about 20 years ago. They've got about 18 acres of grapes, including Sangiovese, Syrah, Montepulciano, Tempranillo, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Blanc, and others. The winery produces more than 10,000 cases annually. Included in your purchase will be a two-bedroom cottage, several large tasting areas, an 18-hole disc golf course, wine production and storage facilities, an office, gym, and finally, the Enoteca Urban Wine Bar located in Marble Falls. A helipad makes for easy access to and from the estate. The price? $6.9 million. The winery was for sale back in 2017 and was close to closing, but the buyers never did finalize the sale. The asking price back then was $10 million, but it was lowered when the deal fell through. I'll link to the listing and to all the news I've mentioned. And that's the Texas Wine News. If you haven't already, please sign up for the podcast newsletter on the website at thisistexaswine.com. I've been doing quite a few winery visits, and I'm going to be sharing my favorites and some additional tips and wine recommendations as well. There's just not enough time to cover it all in the podcast. I've tasted three more Vedras lately that have really wowed me, and I'll be sharing those as well. So go visit the website and get signed up. That's thisistexaswine.com. Now on to our interview. My guests on this episode are three longtime friends and Texas wine industry participants. Denise Clark is the owner of Denise Clark PR. 
She's a public relations pro and has worked with the Texas Department of Agriculture's wine marketing program. And now, among her other clients, she's director of Texas Fine Wine, a collaborative marketing initiative by four premier Texas wineries. Dr. Russ Kane, a.k.a. the Texas Wine Slinger, is a Texas wine writer, wine competition judge, and the teacher of the Specialist of Texas Wine Course. Russ and his wife started the Houston chapter of the Wine Society of Texas, a nonprofit educational organization. Matt McGinnis is president of Big Thirst Marketing and partner at Big Thirst Consulting. Matt works with winery, brewery, and distillery clients on public relations programs, digital strategy, product marketing, positioning, and messaging. All three of these folks have more certifications and accolades than you would believe. And most importantly, they're uniquely positioned to help tell the story of how the Texas wine industry developed. Here's our interview. I'd like to start just by asking each one of you to tell us who you are and what you've been doing in the Texas wine world. And Russ, I'll start with you. Okay. Uh, I've been a kind of a wine and food person most of my adult life. My father was in the restaurant business. And when I started traveling, I, I looked at wine. So, you know, uh, I've developed, though, the moniker of, of Doc Russ, uh, Texas wine slinger, uh, because I've, I've, since about 1996, uh, uh, I discovered it, uh, the uh, Texas wine industry, not as a discoverer, just a, as a wanderer, and uh, became part of the Wine Society of Texas and help build it up to about 400 people and about six chapters statewide. And so kind of uh, I, I use that as the vehicle to, you know, learn a lot from the point when we only had 40 wineries and everything else has evolved with writing and, and authoring books and working with Matt and uh, Denise on great events since then. Matt, how about you? Thanks, Shelly. It's great to be here with both Russ and Denise. I really appreciate you having us on. Um, I'm Matt McGinnis. I'm the president of Big Thirst Marketing. Um, I'm also a partner in Big Thirst Consulting. Uh, Big Thirst Marketing is a full-service agency that is dedicated to helping food and beverage companies tell their stories. And we represent seven Texas wineries at the moment, so I've um, been deeply involved in, in Texas wine um, for a little more than a decade. Um, but I, at professionally um, doing marketing for Texas wineries that started uh, in 2014 with a, a, an event called The Sip, um, which was a trade and media event uh, hosted by about six wineries. And that actually gave me the impetus for starting my agency. So I've been doing this for seven years and uh, very happy to be a part of it. Uh, my second company, Big Thirst Consulting, is um, for distilleries, is business consulting for distilleries. And um, while it's not Texas wine, we get to do a lot with Texas beverages, so um, that keeps me deeply ingrained in, in the industry. Excellent. Denise? I, like Matt, am a PR, PR person for going on 30-some years and got the good fortune about 15 years ago to support the Texas Department of Agriculture's wine marketing program, uh, helping them with their PR activities, and that is how I had the good fortune of meeting both Matt and Russ. Russ, again, uh, with his uh, Vintage Texas blog, and back then, Matt had a blog, uh, What Are You Drinking? Right, What Are You Drinking? Yeah, yeah. and um, so as I was supporting the Texas wine industry um, 
gosh, 15 years ago, um, that also got me involved with a drink local wine initiative that a wine writer, Jeff Siegel, that all of us know, had uh, started and uh, also supported that with uh, different conferences that were in Colorado, uh, here in Texas, Maryland. So I have, like I said, I'm super pleased that I've been able to, to work with the Texas wine industry for so long. I hear that there are so many fun events back in the day that all seem to happen around the Hill Country in Austin, and I want to hear more about the SIP. Yeah, the, the SIP was um, a group of wineries got together, sort of led by Susan Aller from Fall Creek Vineyards um, and Glenna Yates from Spicewood and Ron Yates, uh, and they put together um, a group of, of wineries to do a blind tasting with Texas Wine versus World. Um, and it was a lot of fun. We did it in a wine bar that used to exist downtown Austin. Folks like Russ Kane came and Denise, I think you were there. Uh, mm-hmm. But we had a big group. We filled out the room um, and we had, I don't know how many wines, like 28 wines or something. We did this blind tasting and it was just fantastic, um, you know, in early 2014 to have sommeliers and wine buyers and wine writers taste these wines and, and get to see and really experience that. There were so many Texas wines that were as good or even better than some of the best wines in the world from France and Spain and Italy. And it was a, an eye-opening event, um, but it wasn't a big public event. It wasn't one where we invited the public to come in. It was just media and, and trade. I, I think I have to jump on that because um, I have to give some credit to Bobby Champion at the Go Texan program because he actually coined the Texas Two-Sip. Right. Which is exactly what Matt's talking about. Very similar, yeah. It Mm -hmm. it would be this blind tasting of Texas wines versus their international counterparts. And we did that. One of the first uh, Texas two sips we did was actually when Texom, for two years, I I double checked with uh, James Tidwell in 2007 and 2008, Texom was actually held in Austin. And we were allowed to set up a little Texas two-sip, you know, breakout session basically in the corridor and do that. And we started doing it uh, with media often, particularly national media, because uh, it was kind of easy to write off Texas wines as such a young industry that, you know, okay, yeah, you're making wines in Texas. But when you blind taste them against their international counterpart and break down those preconceived ideas, it's really effective. I think that's a really interesting point you just made, Denise, that that 2007-2008 was right after I started the Vintage Texas blog, and it's the first time I went on the road to cover an event. And I no sooner got there that I bumped into you, mm-hmm. and I was watching you do the two sips, and it was really kind of fascinating because here's these you know world-class uh, psalms tasting blind, you know, two wines, one from Texas, one from not, same variety. And, you know, the good news to me was not that they were able to choose one or the other, but a lot of times they were confused. They, they really thought the quality points were actually pretty close. And so to me, that was, that, was, yeah, that was the serendipity of us meeting, which then evolved into some of the other uh, road trips we, we did after that, both the High Plains media tours and with, with the growers and stuff. And one of my favorite events, which was the gridiron and grape thing we did up in Dallas Mm -hmm. to go along with the uh, Dallas uh, New York football game up there. And we tasted New York wines and Texas wines blind in front of a big, 
you know, auditorium full of people. It was really pretty cool. Oh, my gosh, I forgot about that one. And as we're talking about the two-sip, I remember going to New York to do the two-sip with journalists. We took Wes Marshall, who was a big wine writer here in Austin. He has since moved, uh, but he covered Texas wine for many years. And he actually went with us to talk to the, the journalist in New York. And we've been going back to New York uh, quite frequently as part of the Texas Department of Agriculture's wine marketing program. They did that, what, two years? We didn't do it last, they didn't go last year, but they went two years ago. And um, Apron Food PR, I do work with as well, had one, uh, worked on that business with TDA. And uh, it's always super fun to go to New York and show off Texas wines to the community there as well. Do you remember when you started the two sip? What were the varieties that you were most excited about or what got the best response from the participants? Uh, I would say for sure, and I welcome Russ and Matt to help me remember, but I know Tempranillo has always been one of the grapes that we would blind taste and would surprise, I think, a lot of the Psalms or media because of the uh, great Tempranillos here. We probably did a Cabernet because uh, we all, always have had some really fa- fantastic Cabernet. And I'm certain Viognier would have been one of our white wines. Right. Yeah, the ones that, that really stood out for me, um, you know, the, the Cabernet, because, you know, people, a lot of people don't think it can grow well in Texas, and, and it does. Mm-hmm. Um, Tempranillo and Viognier, of course, because they grow incredibly well here and show well against their counterparts in Spain and France. But two that, that I thought were fascinating that stumped Psalms and also really changed some opinions were Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. Um, mm-hmm. Sauvignon Blanc in certain vineyards in Texas is amazing. Uh, and there's a couple wineries that do it really well. And same with Chardonnay. And, and you know, you, you just wouldn't think that, you know, you think it's a cool climate grape, but there are places in this state that just do amazingly well with those two grapes. And, mm-hmm. and seeing people just getting their minds blown by that, it's just it's fascinating. Well, I can add one more on to there because one of the, the my favorite uh, two sips I've done in a lot of different uh, like Wine Society of Texas uh, uh, events is uh, Sangiovese, particularly Reserve Sangiovese. And I remember many times we had people arguing, well, this is old world, this is new world, this is new world, this is old world. And they they almost always referred to our Sangiovese as an old world Sangiovese. It always confused them. It just blew my mind. That's cool. Why, why is it important, do you think, that Texas go to New York and show New York Psalms our wines? Well, I'll jump in on that. And for most of the New York tastings we've done, they've actually been with media. And I think it's really, it's hard for media and you know, Shelley, Russ, to talk about wines that you haven't tasted. So if we want to get any type of national coverage, whether it be wine enthusiast or uh, wine spectator or food and wine, I mean, those writers need to taste our wines. And there's also a lot of freelance wine writers in New York working for a multitude of uh, both print and online outlets. So I just think it's super important for us to be there, actually taste the wine, meet the winemakers, the wine owners, have a conversation, and really come away from that tasting, understanding really what Texas is all about. Ideally, 
love to get them here, right? I mean, that's the best is we can get these journalists to come to Texas and visit the Hill Country, visit the High Plains, visit the other regions around the state. It's harder to do. And, of course, we got completely, you know, killed last year with COVID with no trips uh, here. But I think it's important to to do both, to go there and to, to bring the journalists here. Shelly, I wanted to throw out something here because I think the underlying point that anybody who's not intimate with the industry needs to realize is while Texas is the fifth largest wine producing state, literally 95% of that product is consumed within the state. It doesn't get distributed very widely, although various wineries are working at it currently. Uh, so it, like I said, it, it like Denise said, it's hard for many of these writers or psalms or whoever in different parts of the country to get a hold of Texas wine unless they're traveling here. So I think, you know, the roadshow concept that uh, Denise is talking about in a place like New York is a place to get good confirmation of, of, of what Texas wines are. Yeah, it, I, I agree. I attended a, a Texas uh, Wine in New York event in, in, I think it was 2017, and I was really impressed by the number of wine buyers, brokers, sommeliers, distributors, and media who attended. There were about 20 wineries um, in the event, and, and it was just a, a walk and you know, sip and stroll tasting. Um, and to a person that visited the, the various tables, um, I think they were all impressed. But it was a, it was a very large crowd. Um, and seeing the excitement for Texas wine um, was, was great. And I know it, for some people it wasn't the first time, but for many it was. Because as Russ just said, you know, most of our wines aren't distributed for various reasons and cost being a big one. Because if you can sell all your wine locally, <laughs> why, why go through the cost of uh, you know, a distributor and wholesaler to uh, take away a big part of your margin and sell it in other states? Denise, do you think after COVID restrictions are lifted that we'll get back to doing that event again? Or what's the status? Um, I think so. Um, I'm hopeful that... Um the Texas Department of Agriculture will be looking at um, doing that. And there's always uh, private groups, including the one that I work with, Texas Fine Wine, that is always interested in going up and showing off our wines, um, as well as bringing journalists in. So, yes, um, it, if it'll probably be later this year or more likely next year. Mm-hmm. So, Russ, at what point did the hashtag... TX wine come into being. Can you talk about the backstory on that? Well, I can give you my first perspective on that is that uh, right after starting my blog in 2007, I went to the first international wine bloggers conference. It was the first of its kind. And again, it helped me kind of figure out what we were doing on Twitter and not having done Twitter before. And then when I, I got with Denise and we were getting to do some of these two SIP events, and we were starting to do some of the uh, uh, Texas Twitter Tuesdays, we had to decide how do we mark our turf, I guess is what I would say is, is you know, because there's so much wind blowing uh, comments all over Twitter, it just becomes a cacophony. So you have to kind of have something that kind of gives the slice that the, uh, the recipient can follow. And so we said, you know, perhaps the most direct and simple thing is just, just to do Texas wine. But again, hashtags being simpler, you want to make it shorter, TX wine. It seems obvious now, 
But back then we had to kind of think through the process because it was all new new turf. Twitter was just going up, Facebook was going up, and so you know that's that's the way I, it kind of played on my end because I went went to the conference. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Being back in the day, we did weekly Twitter Tuesdays, Texas Wine Twitter Tuesdays, and we would feature a different winemaker, a different wine, a different theme. And, you know, it kind of ran its course. And with Instagram taking on so much more, you know, relevance that a lot of it, it just kind of ran its course. But this year during COVID, you know, I reached out to Matt and Russ and I'm like, should we get Texas Twitter Tuesday going again? And we didn't do it weekly, but we did do it for a while. Monthly. Yeah, we did it monthly. We did it monthly. Yeah. But I, I remember yeah. I was walking my dog when I had that same thought. And I, did Denise and I's, you know, wavelength uh, text just kind of crossed because I, I got this vision in my mind of John Bellucci and the uh, Blues Brothers getting the band back together again because that's exactly what it felt right. like. Yeah. Well, we did do it weekly last year in 2020. You know, in, during the the beginning of the lockdown, we actually did do it weekly for a few months and with Jeff Cope um, mm-hmm. participating as well and and. We had a, a good number of, of uh, Texas wine drinkers join us, um, but it was it was it was fun to try and get the band back together. But it's very different uh, today on Twitter than it was you know ten years ago. So um, yeah, it, you know when when it started way back when, you know Denise was getting people together in person to tweet in a conference room. <laughs> That's yeah. right, we would. It kind of <laughs> you was, remember that? <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. We'd all get together and tweet. <laughs> Yeah, I think Denise and I gave a, a session at the uh, Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association meeting on on how to Twitter. Yeah, right. You know, it's just it's it's yeah. funny. It, it goes back that that far, and it's that that basic. You know what is really interesting is you know Russ, you know it goes back that far. Yet every year, both at um, the Twiga Conference um, and the Texas Hill Country Wineries um, Conference, the symposium. There's sessions on social media, yeah. and you know, every year they ask Denise to do PR and me to do social media. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's the same damn thing for more than a decade. Well, I'd, I'd say one of the things, the spinoff of all of that is, you know, we decided to go back to Twitter Tuesday things when COVID started, but I think a lot of the wineries also got involved in social media big right, time, for sure. starting to do virtual tastings on Facebook mm-hmm. or Zoom with their wine clubs and just consumers. And I, I think from from some of the wineries I've talked to is, you know, they've they found a, about the the, the the silver lining on the cloud of 2020 was uh, their increased revenues from uh, internet sales. They yeah. really pushed pushed the boundary there, and yeah, uh, I think absolutely. almost everyone saw an uptick in internet sales. And so important when your tasting room is closed. Right. It is. Well, it is. And. I think interestingly, it, you're reaching a different audience. And so a lot of the wineries, at least the group, uh, the wineries that are in Texas Fine Wine, are continuing to do the virtual tastings even as they're open because you've got people who want to come to the winery, but then you've got a lot of people who are like, I'd like to sit at home and chit chat with the winemaker. It's more intimate. You're one on one, you know, with right. a small group of people. You can ask questions. So I think that, yeah, you're going to see them continue. I know our group is still having virtual tastings every month 
for the rest of this year, not knowing how things might change, but we're reaching an audience that enjoys doing the virtual tastings. And I think that's fantastic. You're right. It's a great point, Denise. And, and it also comes to replace, people get tired of watching TV and to be able to do the one-on-one or even in a small group and hear directly from a winemaker, taste the wine is a great uh, opportunity for consumers who might not be able to make it to a tasting room even in a non-pandemic time. But also, it's a great way to, to get revenue for the wineries because they can schedule paid-for tastings with people on a very regular basis. And some wineries have figured out great models for it um, that, that sort of replicate that experience that you would have in the tasting room uh, by shipping the wine ahead of time. Um, right. And you, know, you get the sale up front and you get repeat sales because the wine's so darn good. And Shelly and Russ, I know you have participated in a participated in a lot of these virtual tastings and I mean I think you've learned a lot and you see a whole different side sometimes or you you get to get fun inside stories that you wouldn't normally get at least that's the feedback I've gotten from people like well that was fun (laughs) I I think I uh, one of the first ones I participated in was a Facebook uh, virtual tasting that uh, Chris Brundred and his wife and kids did Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it was kind of a frenetic, fun event. I mean, I never expected it to go the way it went. And I had already ordered three wines for that event, and they were there. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And you get to ask questions, you know, post the chat. And it, it worked very nicely. Yeah, the whole country wineries, I loved listening into their virtual chats because uh, they'd feature some winery representatives who I'd never met before. So I got to learn about them. So I think they did a great job as well. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think those fine wine events are neat because you get different perspectives from different winemakers. And sometimes you get these two winemakers talking about different philosophies mm-hmm. or concepts. <laughs> and right. You don't get that kind of interaction just by walking in- into a tasting room. Right. Yeah, seeing Dave Riley and Ron Gates <laughs> argue over the best red wine variety in Texas. It's awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I did a virtual tasting just last night. I didn't even buy the pack, but I saw my Facebook alerted me that it was going on live, and so I clicked on it. And even though I'm a wine club member at this winery, I I got something so much more out of the virtual tasting because, frankly, when you visit a winery, often you're not sitting down with the owners. You're sitting down with somebody in the tasting room, and, you know, hearing from the owners is so beneficial, and, you know, the sales will follow. I've also listened in to wineries that I have no affiliation with and don't really know anything about, and it's a good introduction. So I hope Mm -hmm. that they'll continue to go on. I would love to talk about what you think have been some of the best moments in the media for Texas wine. And one in particular that I've seen uh, referred to time and time again is when Wine Enthusiast magazine named Texas one of the 10 best wine travel destinations. Yeah, that was a watershed moment, you know, just, and, and you know, what Denise was just saying, when people come here to experience the hill country, that changes their perception because they see how nice the wineries are and they get to taste the wine in a setting where, you know, there's the romance of it and they see the grapevines and the beauty of the Texas hill country. So when, when a national publication realized how many tourists are coming here, not just for the beauty of Texas, but for the beauty of our hill country wineries, it was it changed the perception for people all around the country and since then you know texas hill country wineries have been 
covered nationally as a wine tourism destination time and time again. Um, just this month, we're in um, Food and Wine magazine as a great road trip and five excellent wineries to visit. Um, you know, in that fantastic, you know, top of the heap wine publication. So, you know, it, that, but I think it all goes back to that 2014 article just changed people's thoughts on it's not just good wine, but it's a great place to go. Well, and speaking of that food and wine story that was written by uh, Jessica Dupuy, and I think we have to give mm-hmm. a shout out to her because she Absolutely. really um, uh, lobbied to cover Texas wine for Texas Monthly and has been doing it uh, for a long time, uh, doing her top list and whatnot. And, you know, Texas Monthly is considered a national magazine. I mean, it's huge here in Texas, but it's, you know, right. got great circulation. But, I, you know, I also really love some of the cover stories like Austin Monthly and D Magazine that they've done really featuring, yeah. you know, the wineries and uh, top wine, some of their favorite wines. So it's so important to cultivate, you know, our relationships and the coverage here in the state as well, because there's still a lot of Texas people who haven't gone out and really tried Texas wine. So we got to keep reaching them too. Well, you know, the interesting part about my Hill Country Winery book, it came out in 2014 as well. And uh, I was contacted by Arcadia Publications to do this. And, uh, you know, originally they wanted to do all of Texas, but when the focus was on the Hill Country, I said, we really got to tool this down. You know, Texas is as big as France. You know, you're not going to do a book on France unless you're going to cover all the different wine, different areas. But the interesting thing about this was, and I, I've heard this, uh, this book has had legs and keeps on going. It's been their best selling wine country book at Arcadia. You know, it's a picture book basically with, with extended captions. And, uh, and they've done Napa, they've done other major wine regions, but for some reason this, this book has been their best seller. So I think a lot of it is the wine tourism thing. If you're coming into mm-hmm. Texas, you go on Google and try to find a book on the Hill Country wineries, you're probably going to find the uh, Hill Country winery book. And Russ, will you talk a little bit about your wine slinger book too? Yeah, yeah my wine slinger book. That, that was an interesting thing because I had to sit out. I sold my personal company to Honeywell, and they did their due diligence and found more about me with wine than just about anything else and said, <laughs> For two years, you got to sit out. So I was chomping at the bit for two two years, and then I said, uh, "I got I, I want to write the next book the Texas wine industry needs. The one that tells the story, shows the heart, the passion, the grit, the gumption of these people that are putting out their 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 blood, sweat, and tears." And so that's what was the nucleus to the blog, and that was a blog to book project. So I got a contract from Texas Tech Press to do this, this, this book. And it's 26 stories that really follow me through wine country. I think I put on six, 8,000 miles on my car in a two-year period to cover it. But it's fascinating because it takes you back to what I call the roots and then back further. It takes you back to the Spanish missionary period mm-hmm. and how that all happened. And yes, I did an interview. You might like this you PR people. I did an interview with a, uh, a, a 17th century Spanish missionary who started the first vineyard in Texas. It was a virtual, but I did it. Uh, but anyway, uh, went into the 1800s when we had the, the immigrants 
coming in, the, the farmer immigrants, and they brought their wine culture. And then more recently, I told the story of the restart. The, the cast of characters we had with uh, McPherson and others, uh, the Allers, and uh, you know, Bonarigos and, and, and the Beckers, to tell what got them involved to help start this process. So it's, it, to me, it, it, it shows the heart and soul and that's what I wanted to do. And as a matter of fact, it had so much history in it, uh, Texas Tech, unbeknownst to me, made it part of their uh, uh, Grover E. Murray uh, Culture in the American Southwest book series, which is a historical book series. So anyway, that's kind of what it, what it was and is. And I use that uh, as one of my textbooks now in my uh, Texas Wine Specialist class. Which I've taken and is a great class that I recommend. Thank you. And several of us are ready for Texas Wine 201. So whenever you've got that course, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. Thank you. I'm trying to find the time to do that. Hopefully the fall. That's oh, that's awesome. kind of the the benchmark I've put out there. Awesome. So Denise and Matt, I think I met both of you for the first time. We have many mutual friends, but I actually met you face to face for the first time at Texom. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how? Texas wine has benefited from its presence at Texom and how that's changed over the years? And maybe we should start with what Texom is. Well, yes, Texom is um, a huge conference for sommeliers, uh, media, wine enthusiasts, um, highly respected, uh, excellent sessions about all different wine regions in the world. And Texas often gets covered maybe every two or three years as one of their sessions. And, you know, after participating in the Austin uh, Texom conferences back in 2007 and 2008, you know, I definitely kept, kept my eye on things. And I remember that the next year when it had moved to Dallas, and I think it was when they were first starting to do hospitality suites. And it just made me... Um, crazy for all these sommeliers and wine enthusiasts to come to Texas and if there wasn't a Texas session for them not to experience some Texas wine. Um, Texon was starting to consider doing these hospitality suites and so we put together a Texas wine hospitality suite and pretty sure Matt and uh, Russ both came to it. Um, you and bet. That would have been, you know, it was in the early, early days when there was only about, I don't know, eight hospitality suites. There just weren't a lot right. of them. And it was from that. I mean, that is such an important community to be in front of. And that's right. why, you know, from that uh, hospitality suite then evolved what is now Texas Fine Wine, that group of wineries. Um, just said we need to keep this going because at that point the TDA um, marketing funds had been cut by the legislature so there wasn't a lot of uh, go Texan uh, marketing programs happening so that's how Texas Fine Wine got started and we've continued to be at Texom and I'm super excited that many other wineries um, go Texan the whole country wineries have also gotten sweets and in and really increase the presence of Texas wines at Texon. It's really, really exciting. But you, I can't underestimate um, the real value that Texon brings to the Texas wine industry um, through its sessions, but also through the sweets and tasting opportunities. 
Right. I'll echo that. I mean, Texom is, is the world's largest education or um, conference for wine professionals. And the, the quality of education is just stellar. Um, I started going before I started Big Thirst Marketing um, as a sommelier and as a wine writer and was fortunate to attend um, Denise's hospitality suite with Texas Wines. Um, but then after I started my agency, was able to pour wines for wineries like Wedding Oak Winery and Fall Creek and get feedback from sommeliers and wine writers um, at a conference where they're tasting some of the best wines in the world and hear you know, great feedback from them. Um, you know, and as Denise said, Texas wines are also in some of the um, sessions. Um, Jessica Dupuy put one on with a writer from Decanter out of the UK um, a few years ago, and it was again one of those Texas versus world. Um, and Pernalis was in it, Fall Creek was in it, and um, <laughs> there was a, a post on one of the Facebook groups afterwards with um, somebody saying. How in the world could a Texas wine ask for, you know, hundred dollars for a bottle, and it caused sort of a firestorm because it was about the Fall Creek Xterra wine, the Tempranillo that was being tasted blind against some of the best wines from Spain, and um, pretty much to a person who was in that room, um, said, "Hey, it was one of the best there, um, so of course it can command a hundred dollar price, and they sell it out, so why not?" And that actually spurred not only, uh, you know, a lot of conversation on Facebook, but a couple blog posts with people jumping in and saying, you know, if, if the wine is of that quality uh, and the production standards and the grapes are, you know, of that quality and they're in blind tasting, standing shoulder to shoulder with some of the best wines from, um, you know, from Spain, why not? Um, and people are buying it. So I think, you know, Texom raises awareness, not... Uh, of you know the the high quality, but also the importance of Texas wine in in, in a really in a world setting. So it's mm-hmm. it's great to be there, even though not a lot of wineries can afford to be there. You know, it's the ones who can. It's it's good to put them on that stage. I was in that room when Jessica was presenting on Tempranillo, and um, I felt so nervous about how the Texas wines were going to do. Right. And, we know, as we're tasting, I'm looking around, like, how are people reacting? And and um, it's so fun because oftentimes the producers are actually in the audience. And so they're hearing questions from, and you don't ever know what's going to happen. I mean, it could go one of two ways, right? And I yeah. had the same experience with another session. It was on sparkling wine. And the McPherson Chenin Blanc, sparkling mm-hmm. Chenin Blanc, was oh, in a so lineup good. of... I think there were like 24 wines we tasted or some ungodly amount. It was like split out over a two or three hour session. And um, some, I remember a restaurateur stood up and said, this wine would go so well with the salty meats at my restaurant. And, and just things like that. I mean, because there are, there are people that are able to um, add wines to their wine list at their restaurants, their distributors in the room just so many people um, that are that are impacted by this session. So that's always big fun. I want to talk about what you think hospitality was like in tasting rooms back 20 or 25 years ago versus what hospitality is like when you visit a Texas tasting room now. How has hospitality changed? And um, just some words about what it might be like to be a tourist in Texas wine country. I'll start because uh, I've, I go back the farthest, I think actually visiting Texas uh, tasting rooms. And, you know, back in the 90s, on the 290 trail, you had Becker, maybe. 
and maybe a little closer to Austin, you had uh, you know a couple more, and then all the way out to Tau, Texas. Tow or Tau, is it? Tau, Texas. Tau. Yeah, Tau. you have uh, Fall Creek. It, it was sparse. So, you know, they're, they're very closely spaced nowadays compared to that, uh, particularly along 290. But the other thing is, is it, it was minimalist. I mean, it was taste this or taste that. And you could easily find a, a winery principle around, probably back then. Uh, but the thing I, f I would say going toward the current vintage is now we've got a more sophisticated consumer. They're even talking about food and wine together, pairings. So a lot of the wineries are providing little bites of food that goes with a planned uh, set of wines for each wine. And, and that's a very nice experience. I mean, you got, usually have to reserve. That's the other thing now. Things are more on a reservation basis. And yeah, so I think it's, it's, there's, it's, it's a more sophisticated customer, a more sophisticated sale, a more sophisticated experience. Yeah, I would add to that um, uh, the Texas Fine Wine Group, which I think I've mentioned, is Perdinalis, Dukeman, Spicewood, and Bending Branch. And what they say all the time is years ago, uh, you know, wine enthusiasts come in, do you have a Chardonnay? Do you have a Pinot Grigio? Yeah. And they're like, um, no, we have this Viognier. Via what? Uh, or Agliano Co. I mean, right. So it's been a lot of education about um, the types of wines that are most popular uh, in Texas. Um, if you like Chardonnay, try a Viognier. If you like Sauvignon Blanc, yes, try a Sauvignon Blanc, but maybe try a Vermentino, right? So it's a lot of that type of education. Whereas now, fast forward, as Russ said, the wine consumer is more educated. I think they know now that they're going to show, they're going to come into a tasting room and they're going to ask for that Tempranillo or Tempranillo, you know, because they know that's what Texas makes so well. So they're looking for some of these grapes. So it is a, a more educated, I think, wine consumer than it was maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's absolutely true. Um, I, I'm a newcomer compared to Denise and Russ. Um, I didn't move to Texas until the end of 2002. Um, and I had been right before that, working in a winery and tasting room in Oregon. Um, and so I had a lot of experience not only working in one, but because I worked in one, I could go trade wine at other wineries. So I spent a lot of time visiting wineries in California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, so been to all the main wine regions in, in the U.S., um, as well as minor ones um, and um, several around the, the world. Um, so I've had a ton of tasting room experience and that didn't end when I moved here. Um, been to wine regions this year. I've been unvaccinated, so you know, I'm getting on the plane. But anyway, um, the uh, when I moved here, though, my first experience was not positive. Um, I felt really let down, um, and I um, didn't enjoy the experience. I didn't think the hospitality was up to par. I didn't think the sophistication was quite there, and the quality of the wine, frankly, was pretty abysmal. Um, and so I actually didn't open another Texas wine for a number of years until Denise encouraged me to try some through one of her TDA programs, um, several years later. And, um, I'm happy to say now, fast forward, you know, almost 20 years that the, 
the, the quality, not just of the hospitality, but the wines, but the, the entire experience in a tasting room is caught up with a lot of the other wine regions. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't feel as mom and pop. It feels a little more pol- polished. It feels like what Denise is saying with the expectations of wine consumers has really um, accelerated in the last couple of decades. And so has the um, experience in Texas winery tasting rooms. Now, I will say that um, I just visited a couple really impressive wineries um, less than two months ago. And um, I think Texas still has opportunities to continue to grow um, in how we meet customer needs, how we um, present our wines, how we do it in ways that are going to thrill and delight. Some some wineries really have come a long ways here in Texas, but there are others that they could take a page from um, some of the more mature wine regions in, in the U.S. Let me let me throw out one more thing because it does go back to the beginning days. Talk about a disappointing uh, uh, tasting room experience. You know, uh, Ron Yates at uh, Spicewood he purchased the uh, the the winery from uh, the previous owner, the Manigolds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had trucked out to Spicewood. My wife and I went out there back in the early days. And so they, they poured some wines for us, still in that same tasting room he has uh, today. And, uh, okay, uh, okay, we're all done. Uh, where do I, where, can I buy some wine? And I says, well, no, because we're in a dry county. So I could taste, but I couldn't buy. Now, which business model for a winery does that, does it work, right? It, it doesn't. So that was one another of the law changes we had to get through the legislature uh, that actually looked at uh, the, uh, uh, the, the wine industry and the wine product as an agricultural product. And literally anywhere you grow and make wine, no matter whether it's dry, wet, or whatever for alcohol, you can legally make wine and sell wine. You know, it, it was a major, it, it was a, actually a constitutional amendment required to make that happen. When was that 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 changed? Do you recall? Uh, early 90s, early 90s for that law. There was a previous law called the Texas Farm Winery Act that allowed them to actually make the wine in a dry area, but then step across the road and get into a wet region and sell the wine. The sale actually took place somewhere else. Leave it to Texans to be creative. Right? Yeah. (laughs) What are you most excited to do in Texas wine that you have been missing out on on this pandemic? Are there certain events or activities that you're ready to jump back into? Where do I, say, I, I would, I'll just start. I mean, I, I just think, you know, being in a closer setting with other people in a tasting room and getting comfortable again with that. I just did that for the first time. And uh, now that I'm vaccinated and everything. And it, it was a nice experience, and I didn't realize I had missed it quite so much. Because I have a place out near Fredericksburg, and I used to go there on weekends, and we, my wife and I would travel around, use that as our center of operations, but I haven't been able to do that so much anymore. So um, I think just to be part of that tasting room experience and uh, sit out with a glass of wine on their back porch, patio, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited about the in-person events. We had a small media tasting last week uh, at Spicewood Vineyards with the Texas Fine Wine Group. And I kind of was giddy. I, I was surprised at how, I mean, we hadn't all seen each other in person. You know, we've been doing virtual tastings. But to be able to hug everyone and actually just chit-chat. And when it was over, we just sat around and got caught up on just life. It was fantastic. And we're doing a cheese and wine pairing event at Bending Branch next week. And I'm really excited. I'm excited to do some of these consumer events again. We've got our annual Texas Wine Month dinner on the books. We usually do a boat cruise, which is super fun. But, you know, we couldn't do a boat cruise during COVID. Way too close and confined. So I'm hopeful by fall we'll be able to do that again. But I really, I do miss these in-person gatherings where it's just, the virtual tastings are great. Again, you as we talked about earlier, you get information that you don't always get. But that energy of all being together is Irreplaceable. I'm with you, uh, Denise. I um, I just want to echo what you said. The the Texas Fine Wine event that you put on was was great, and you know that it made me miss the shared experience, but the educational aspect that you get with leaning over and making comments rather than typing it in chat on Zoom, uh, and that sort of experience of uh, you know the education process of wine happens. Um, it it does fine online, but it's more it's more rich and, and um, permeates me a little bit more in person. So I, I'm happy to, to, to be able to do those. Uh, tasting rooms. I haven't been to a tasting room since yesterday. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting back to those. Um, <laughs> now, By you two know, o'clock today? Right. Well, I mean, that's one of the things with, with working in the industry now is I, you know, went to fewer in-person things last year. But if I look at back at my mileage chart to do my taxes earlier this year, I'm like, Oh boy, I went to a lot of wineries, you know, and um, so it, it wasn't that I didn't go. It's just that I didn't see people when I went. It was sit outside and talk to the owner. So seeing people now will be, uh, you know, that's it's a nice thing about getting back out there with, with um, you know, being vaccinated and restrictions lifted. And I'm sure the wineries are so ready to have more normal wine club pickup parties. Right, exactly. I mean, I know Bending I know Bending Branch has been doing drive-by pickup parties, yeah. you know. Here we go. We're going to hand you your wine. Good to see you. Uh, versus getting back to. But I I still think it will be a while before some wineries have the really big. I think they're still going to limit uh, the number of people at their events. Yeah. Um, and then some will open up more quickly. Ron Yates Winery is going to change how they do their theirs. They're going to stop being quite as tight as the last few pickup parties. So that'll change. I know that um, you know, Fall Creek is is starting to do dinners at their uh, location. So mm-hmm. there are some things changing. Yeah, it's, it's great. A dinner, wouldn't that be I know. so nice? Sushi and wine pairing, you know, awesome <laughs> things like that. Yeah. What do you think Texas needs to continue to grow and evolve and continue its climb toward dominance in the the world wine market? Well, I think, you know, what we've seen recently is that the level of expertise in growers and in winemaking has really, really improved over the past couple of decades. The sophistication that you see in how people are approaching agriculture in this state, they're not just changing from being a row cropper you know, growing cotton to grapes, they understand the difference in how to grow 
the right varietals for their vineyard, for their weather, for their terroir, um, and uh, get the right yields um, for that grape to the winemakers. And winemakers have really, really gotten sophisticated with getting the best out of the grapes that grow well in this state. The, you know, the dozens of varietals that do really well in this state. But what I think for the future that, that we'll see, we're seeing indications of this now. It, there's some things that, that um, have happened in you know, places like Spain and France, um, as well as California more recently, where you've got the winery co-op, where you've got shared equipment, shared expertise, shared opportunities for younger winemakers or winemakers who don't have the capital to build their own to come in and make really, really high quality wines. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to go to some, some excellent wine co-ops in, in France and Spain, as well as in Sonoma County, and see those in, in the past. But now, knowing what, like, Wedding Oak Winery started doing this um, with Seth um, Urbanic, making great wines for a number of wineries around the state, um, you see that, and then you see that at, at Slate Mill, um, you see they're, they're making incredible wine, where they're inviting winemakers to come in uh, and make their wines at their, their location. And then now with Kerrville Hills, um, winery doing the same thing. They've got their, their winery incubator is just allowing winemakers to flourish in a way where, you know, like, like Barbara uh, from Cibonet, um coming in, she knows what she's doing, but she not only gets to use the equipment, but she gets to do the um, learn from other winemakers um, like Mike from Abastris and, and, and John from Kerrville Hills, where their expertise, they, they share it. They grow together, and, and I think that that is really going to accelerate how we see younger wineries reach quality much faster and go way beyond what we're even experiencing today. The, the fantastic wines we get today are, I think, going to continue to get even better and better with this kind of synergy happening in our state. Yeah, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add something, too, that uh, I think going forward, the, the, the current legislative session, I don't know if it's going to happen, but there's been bills submitted in the Senate and the House to tighten up the uh, labeling requirements uh, to be tighter than just the federal regulations uh, of what qualifies to be a Texas wine, particularly in Texas uh, AVA wine, something that may be from a region like the Hill Country or the High Plains, so that they will be made from 100% Texas wines. I'm breaking in with just a quick note about this legislation. Shortly after our interview, the legislation passed. They will still keep one level, the basic Texas level, that's 75% per the federal requirements. But I think to have a Hill Country wine or a, a, a High Plains wine that people know and it's stated that by law it's 100% Texas grapes will address one big problem I've seen is uh, we've not penetrated or the Texas wine industry has not penetrated the uh, restaurant business very far because a lot of the Psalms basically have this notion that most Texas wine is made from non-Texas fruit. Now it happens occasionally uh, due to various reasons or winery philosophies, but by and large, what they're being offered is at least 75% Texas wine, but they're into the nuances of sense of place, terroir, local expression, and they want to see those wines to be 100% Texas wine. So I think if we can get it through this legislative session, great, if not, it'll come back for the next one, but it seems to have support from all the sectors of the industry that it needs to gain, gain traction in 
Austin. Yeah, I think um, to build on that, that's a great point, Russ. Um, I do think we're going to see more, or I hope we'll see more, vineyard-designated wines um, and and some new AVAs. I mean, to have these Texas High Plains and Hill Country AVAs be so large when the microclimates within those AVAs are so specific and there's so many of them that it's crazy that we don't have more of those more specific designations because I think that is what a lot of wine buyers are looking for that sense of place that sense of terroir and it's hard to get that with an AVA that's nine million or eight million acres large, right? Break up the hill country AVA. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, and I've seen a lot of, for example, um, the, the group I work with are doing more of the vineyard designation. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's mm-hmm. really, really helpful. And to Matt, your point, I mean, the quality, it's great the way this co-op model is working. Just the wineries in general are still so good at helping one another out to continue to improve the quality. There hasn't been a better time where I haven't been more proud to represent Texas wines. I am happy to share a wine with any of my friends who are doubters and, you know, try it. And they, I have had a couple who have bought our bundles who have never had Texas wine. They're like, you know, I hate to say this, I kind of had low expectations and oh my God, the wines were fantastic. And I'm, that just makes my day. And I'm like, okay, keep buying then because <laughs> the wines are great. I'm with you. That's about all I buy now is Texas wine. And that's all I will pour for my friends. And that's all I take on the road. Definitely. Yep. Me too. Well, this has been so informative and I could talk to you guys all day. I have some, um, some questions that we'll have to consider next time we get together for a glass yeah, of Texas too. wine. Soon. <laughs> thank you too. so much, yeah, Shelley. It's great to be with the, t- the Terry Gross of Texas wine. I really appreciate <laughs> oh, it. Oh, well. It gosh. is. It's fantastic. I can aspire to be the Terry Gross of Texas wine. I'll take it. <laughs> thank you, Denise, Russ, and Matt. Be sure to follow these fine folks on their respective social media accounts. On Instagram, Denise is at Denise Clark TX. Russ is at Vintage Texas One. And Matt is at Big Thirst Marketing. Next up, I'm handing out some gold stars. I attended two large wine events over the past couple weeks, and I've selected a favorite wine from each one to share with you today. I'm calling them the best of the fest, and they get my gold stars. First, I attended the Go Texan Wine Festival at Panther Island in Fort Worth. It was sponsored by the Cross Timbers Wine Trail. My gold medal wine that day was the Alianico Rosé by Silver Spur Winery in Heiko. I've never been to Silver Spur, but it's on my list now. It's a bolder style of rosé that really hit the spot. It's $22 on the Silver Spur website, or make a visit to the tasting room. While I was at the Go Texan Wine Festival, I also really enjoyed meeting the proprietors and winemakers and tasting wines from Deshane Winery in Gainesville and Marker Cellars Winery in Alvord. I hope to visit those soon, too. Next, just a few days ago, I attended the Toast of Texas event put on by the Wine and Food Foundation. It was out at Stonehouse Villa in Driftwood. My gold medal wine that day was an actual gold medal wine from the Texom International Wine Awards. It's the Llano Estacado Winery's 2019 Roussan from One Way Vineyards. I had a chance to chat with Llano's winemaker, Jason Centani, 
about everything he's got going on. I'm super excited about Roussan, both this one from Yano and the one from William Chris Vineyards that I talked about last week. I think this Yano Roussan is wine club only. It may not even be released yet, but watch for it. And by the way, that Wine and Food Foundation event and the Go Texan and Cross Timbers Wine Trail event the previous weekend were both very fun and well-organized events. It was great to be out with a bunch of fellow Texas wine supporters. Cheers to the organizers. Join me in two weeks to hear from my first guest from an East Texas winery. It's Michael McClendon of Sage's Vintage. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please help me spread the word. I appreciate you subscribing and also leaving ratings and reviews. Don't forget to follow the podcast on at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you've already done all that, maybe you could send me your thoughts, questions, or ideas for future episodes. My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. You can also leave me a voicemail at 802-585-1286. Maybe I'll share your comment or question on the next show. Remember, all the show notes for this episode are at thisistexaswine.com. That's where you'll find all the links to the news stories I shared. While you're there, you can also sign up for the newsletter and click the support the podcast tab to buy me a glass of Texas wine or three. Big thanks to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all.